Good evening and welcome to another edition of RPG Coast to Coast. I'm your host, Brian from Lost Relic Industries, and our guests will introduce themselves in order of initiative. Hi everyone, I'm Alice Peng, aka Lala, and I am a host of Babies with Knives. I'm also one of the new hosts of the Frog God YouTube channel, and I'm a part of the new I'm a new member of the Frog God family. Repeat all after I'm a new part of. Oh, I'm a new member of the Frog God family. You're a froggy now. I am. Cool. I even have a module coming out with them, so. My name is Glenn. I'm better known as Mr. Welch of the things Mr. Welch can no longer do in a role-playing game. I also run the Welcome to Mastara and Mad Musings um, YouTube channels. And I'm generally a hack as I will write anything I am paid to write. My name's Brandon. I am another one of the hosts of the Babies with Knives podcast, and I join Alice as well over on the Frog God Games YouTube channel. Hi, I'm Caleb Goodson. I was recently made a creative director for 3D Art Digital, a uh, miniature uh, creation company. Okay, guys, uh, I'm going to post some topics here, and we've got quite a few of them uh, in the list there. It looks like, Caleb, uh, you're going to get first choice of a topic to discuss, if you'd like. Okay, great. Well, I'll pick, oh, uh, the miniature company was 3D Art Digital. But, uh... All right, so... Um... I'm going to choose the topic that I submitted, uh, Lore's Factor and Why a Player Chooses a Character, Race, and Class. Um, this uh, recently came up in um, a campaign that I was running. Um, my characters would never choose uh, half-orcs as a race. And uh, if my understanding is um, clear, I think it's one of the least popular character races. Until I actually brought them to um, what was essentially a half-orc society. And it was so barbaric, but delightfully so. I mean, I had them drinking mead made from blood, and uh, they went to a wedding where uh, the two, uh, bride and groom, they punched each other in the face to prove their strength during the wedding. And they loved all of this so much that uh, next game, they all wanted to play as half-orc characters. And uh, that got me to thinking, okay, all this race needed was a little bit of lore, a little bit of hook to get the players to play as something a little different. And uh, is that your experience? Actually, we have a fantastically funny story about half forks because I definitely am a strong proponent of being steeped in lore in whatever games Brandon and I run. And in one game I ran, he and a friend of ours, best friends of uh, in real life, ended up playing brother half forks. And I'll let him tell you the story real quick. So it was uh, there were three of us that had come in the well. I have very fond memories of the adventure. It was unfortunately conflicted uh, by a lot of in-party fighting at times. Uh, we had one person who uh, at times would literally take swings at people. And so my friend Paul and I were making new characters. Our old characters hadn't died, but decided we would not work with this person. And so we said, well, we're going to put together characters that if he decides to escalate, that we will 
deal with this. So we ended up making, uh, actually, we were full orcs, uh, and we had a half-orc brother, uh, a half-orc cousin. Uh, we were brothers, and he was our cousin. And so we made a spike chain using uh, just combat monster beasts, and, you know, we're playing them and having fun, not just trying to destroy a campaign by any means. Our game that we would do was uh, whenever things would lose our interest, uh, people went off and talked a lot or something like that, something that did not fulfill that brutality within the orc's need. Um, we would sit down and we would play a dice game as we understood it. We grabbed 2d6, we rolled against each other, and whoever lost the game, we would punch really hard in the arm. And we were playing this in real life, that whatever the rolls came out, we were just beating on each other. Uh, it, was pro it would probably not be something I'd want to do uh, these days anymore. Um, and so our cousin, the half-orc druid, is like, oh, can I play with you guys? And so we said, sure, you can play. And so it's, you know, the high roll gets to punch the low roll. And then he found out that we were literally hitting each other pretty hard. <laughs> in his arm. And he's like, I don't want to play no more, guys. I don't want to play no more. And that, to me, uh, it fit really well with the, the lore of half-orcs being what you're talking about, that brutal race. I mean, if you watch Star Trek and watch some cool Klingon episodes, you're seeing that exact culture. And uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden there was somebody that's like, I'm not in that league. I don't want to be playing that game with them any longer. And, uh, you know, he and I would come home with bruises on our arms and smiles on our faces. And, and that said, um, we, we very much see half-works very related to Klingons, but yeah, we believe in steeped in lore. Very, very, very heavily. Most of well, my that makes sense, um, given that uh, the Klingons were based on Mongols. So there's a, that uh, brutal nature there. So, yeah, I, I see why. Most of my players, I mean, we play in, because uh, I converted over the Mastara setting from the old D&D. &D, uh, there's always somebody that plays a she, uh, because they just love the fact that, well, they're, they're, they're playing the goodly folk, even though they're not that goodly. I mean, even though they have substantial drawbacks, there's always somebody that always wants to play one. Uh, usually because they think it gives them a chance to act completely, uh, you know, off the wall, you know, in like bedlam insane. But uh, then they find out what happens when they get stabbed with iron. And it still doesn't change their uh, opinion of it, though. My Mistara knowledge is um, over 20 years out of date. So if you can uh, bring me into the circle there to, so I can understand a little. <laughs> sure. The she, spelled S-I-D-H-E, because that somebody always asks, uh, were from the Tall Tales of the Wood, uh, Tall Tales of the Wee Folk uh, Creature uh, Crucible. We updated them to 5th edition. Uh, they all, they're, they look human-ish. They have a really bad habit of they like to mimic mortal societies when they're actually immortal themselves. Yeah, when uh, they get killed, they kind of regenerate like time lords. Um, but so are uh, they are they fey? Because you mentioned yeah, the iron. Yeah, they weakness. are very fey. Okay. And uh, they they have natural illusion and uh, illusion and enchantment magic, but they take double damage from iron. So you have these really charismatic, really mercurial creatures that uh, like to hang around other, what they consider lesser but more curious creatures. And it really, uh, what somebody just described them as, think David Bowie with bad fashion sense. 
<laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, because they mimic they mimic the societies that they're not really elves, they're not really humans, but they they like the culture, so they try to mimic them. And uh, actually, I got a picture of one somewhere. Let me find it. But so, uh, Goblin King David Bowie. Yeah, yeah and uh, <laughs> so I mean, we're talking. One guy, uh, one guy was playing an arcane archer, and he decided for whatever reason that he was going to mimic Prince and all his fashion designs. So you've got a uh, an archer running around in uh, peach and and uh, purple. That is fantastic. Yeah, going to the the question that uh, we're dealing with on the importance of uh, grabbing lore, and if lore can make something more interesting, by all means, I think that uh, attaching yourself to the lore of a of a race is super important. Um, a lot of people, in in my opinion, um, a lot of people just kind of look at it. Oh, that's an elf, so that's just a human with pointy ears that lives a long time. That's a dwarf. Okay, that's a human that for some reason just kind of wants to live underground. And those are choices that they're making because they look at it as if they have evolved in the exact same way. That art is fantastic. Yeah, uh, that's, that's what uh, one of the guys... We had a guy that was playtesting one of the subclasses in my uh, Mastara handbook. And uh, nobody liked it because it was a non-combat. And this guy got his hands on the rate class and just destroyed a module, uh, showing showcasing that in combat it's not powerful. In uh, a a noble's court, he's he's the biggest baddest bone daddy in that yard. That's awesome and very true. Um, but these races don't evolve from the from the same place that uh, the humans did evolve. And so built within their bones is something that is very different at times that, you know, depending on the world that you're coming from. But, you know, dwarves often have some sort of tie to like the earth elementals or something like that. And it gives them a very different perspective and very different instincts than naturally humans would have. And orcs are, by all means, so in the fiction, in the way that I've seen them at my games, are playing with that instinct that they don't necessarily have full control over everything that they're doing because they are a uh, a person that's dealing with that those instinctual responses, that fight or flight, and they're a predator, so they're going to fight all the time. If uh, and I do also think that giving a race some flavor will have really good benefits for interesting people in playing. And sometimes different flavors won't grab all people. I know that when uh, gnomes have been victims of changing pretty heavily from edition to edition on exactly what a gnome is like, and some people are really strongly oriented towards one edition, while other people absolutely hate that version of it. Blame Dragonlance for that. <laughs> Kinder. <laughs> well, well, I was Kenders aren't gnomes. Kenders no, are no, not no. gnomes. No, talking about the tinker gnomes. When gnomes oh, you're talking about the tinker gnome. That's right. Yeah, Sorry. When they went from dwarves light and like, oh, I'm happy and I'm, I live in hills and I cast illusions to, you know, I'm the mad scientist. Well, so something I will bring up about what Brandon was saying, because uh, I've dealt with a lot of people who very much see elves as just humans with, uh, with pointy ears. Sometimes it'd be, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to change their perception without them knowing it. Um, many years ago now, I decided I got sick and tired of my groups playing 
uh, elves like they were just humans uh, that lived a long time with pointy years and some of the other races, um, the way that they were playing it. So I created a world for them to play in and I redid all the races. And it's funny that you mentioned she because S-I-D-H-E because I took uh, influences from Changeling as well as researching first and a second edition D&D and uh, combined a lot of the traits because, well, she have a lot of, in lore, have a lot of similar traits to Grey Elves in older editions. So I made a race called She. And I, and in every aspect of the, uh, of their lore, there was a great, um, a great deal of gray elf lore from a lot of settings. And I had a, several players play them and none of them saw them as an elf. None of them treated them as an elf or actually under, or actually even played them as the uh, human with pointy ears, which was really remarkably strange to me. Well, in designing a race, we also have to, uh, we don't need to stray too far away from the human element because that's what will connect our human players to that race, no matter how strange it may be. As a, for example, uh, the dwarves, there's a, there's, they're always industrious in every uh, single uh, version I've ever seen of a dwarf, regardless of whether they're tied to earth elementals or not. And that quest for industriousness to make the perfect thing, to be perfect in whatever you do, that speaks to uh, a human element in us, uh, a desire for perfection. Uh, with elves, uh, there's, uh, it's an ultimate human. It's what would we be if we had no flaws and we'd basically be an elf. So as long as we don't get too far away from that, uh, no matter how alien your race may be, and no matter how many changes you make, the player can still be interested in playing as that race. Even something as monstrous as an orc or a half-orc. I, I agree with that. I also think that you do need to give enough of a perception filter that they don't end up just being human with that other thing because then they can't they can't immerse and relate to it in in a sense where it actually propels the story or changes the uh, climate of the story. And as for um, and as for Dragonlance gnomes, I happen to actually be a big fan of Dragonlance gnomes. Just so you guys know, I but. I think that also a lot of different systems in later years, and this has changed again because uh, there's a pendulum swing in the way that games are designed. But if you're looking at Dungeons and Dragons, looking at how they over later editions started saying there's too much lore for people to comprehend. So we're just going to start killing off gods. And that's when they really lost me when they killed Hela or sorry, she went MIA. I said, yep. And I'm done with you books. I'm throwing you out my window. Have a nice day. Uh, <laughs> But I think that there should be, it, the lore should be in the hands of the GM. So if there's a lot of lore out there, all the better. Let the GM pick and choose what they want to inundate the world with, what, the, what they want to help the players populate the world with. I don't feel that there should be too much out there. And for, the, for a lot of the games to be taking that out because they feel that it's too intimidating for people, I think that's a little sad, personally. Yeah, there's a there's a serious problem with people. Well, at least I'm I'm an old school, and there's a feeling that they've really dumbed it down. As far as when you take a lot of people joined for the lore, we joined for the 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 background. You know, it's like reading the Dragonlance novels or the Fawford and the Gray Mouse. Or we want to play in those worlds, and if you take that out, you're taking away half the fun. 
Absolutely. The first books that I ever read for D&D were Demi-Human Deities and uh, Faiths and Pantheons. And I read those books cover to cover twice. And I said, whatever this game is, I need to play it. And I need to play it now. And that's what made me fall in love with D&D. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I just actually rewrote an entire gazetteer from the Mastara line because the original sucked. And everybody was complaining about it. And I got tired of hearing about it. So we actually took what we could and expanded the lore. Granted, the guy that wrote it was given one month to write a 96-page book with no playtesting whatsoever, and he did it. Uh, he didn't, uh, he wasn't proud, but he got paid. The first games I ever ran were in the Palladium Megaversal system, which is ridiculously complicated, but their books were full of lore. They were just fun to read. And that really, really helped uh, bring my players into the world. Well, so I, I see what you're saying. They weren't that long if you took all the symbiota rants out of them. <laughs> and that's, uh, I, I agree. I didn't play Palladium all that much, but it was uh, after D&D, Palladium and Hero System were some of the first games that I had that uh, on my bookshelf. And, you know, with Palladium, I'd roll up my characters and such. And the one that really got me were uh, the TMNT and other strangeness, as well as the Roadhog supplement. And because it was just so fantastic to have the anthropomorphic animals and the lore that they were presenting for that made me say, this is the game that I want to play right now. And to this day, it's some of my fondest memories, even though I played it very little in truth. I actually wrote some articles for uh, After the Bomb. I designed a bunch of new mutants. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was, that was fun. <laughs> I think the favorite out of my player group uh, that I was using to test this was the mutant hermit crab. He was obsessed with finding a new shell. <laughs> but to the to the question at hand, yeah, I think lore is important, and it really does aggravate me when, you know, as a GM, sometimes you come up with a lot of lore for your world, or even if you're saying, hey, this is a really cool setting, let's play here, and then there's this lore for an elf, and then you have or whatever race it is and then you have somebody who comes in and plays as opposite that as they possibly can simply to grab some sort of mechanical benefits that they liked in the in the race yeah so, I, oh sorry go ahead no i was going to say i think that that uh, kind of dials back to my earliest experiences with rpgs and and um Later, it's it's been less of an issue with the people that I play with, but I think I was always most disappointed when people made choices for their character based on a mechanic, you know, like leveraging a mechanic or leveraging a min-max. Um, now, some people, that's, that's the game, right? And that's what some people want to play. Uh, as a DM, I was always more excited when people, we were able to create lore behind something that was exciting enough that people would say, oh, I want to play this kind of character. Um, but, and, and once, once you see that, I think you can see the distinction. And then when they start giving that character its own unique qualities, um, and you, you, you can kind of tell it's not for an advantage. Uh, an example, like we were playing a game with um, uh, Pex here, and I created a halfling. And I told him, okay, my halfling is, I'm following all the rules, but he's not like other halflings. He's not into creature comforts. He's more like a rabid, angry, homeless man. Um, he eats things off the ground. He is a drunk. He throws bottles at people. 
um you know he's just like this crazy little honey badger halfling um and he likes to sleep outside in the dirt um and he you know it, it worked um and but you know so it's this dark sun <laughs> maybe <laughs> sounds like yeah um but it it just you know it worked and the idea was was that he under he, the understanding was was that he was still in a culture with other halflings that behave differently but it wasn't to gain any type of advantage um and that's the sort of thing like you would see that when people used to choose like the half work it used to be for this um huge strength advantage you know back in the day you know well you're going to have higher strength and then i would always ask the question well why does the half work have higher strength than the orc um maybe they do you know but just i don't know anyway i, I i'll let you guys continue <laughs> just in a total sidebar to this that uh today i actually spent most of my day kind of Alice has heard me complain, we play Pathfinder a lot, on some of the changes that have happened to the races as they decide to completely convert this race from one thing to another, from addition to addition. She she says she complains a lot, too. Uh, but her complaints aren't the reason that I'm working on this project. Uh, and so I spent a I spent a lot of the day looking at my old second edition stuff and uh, trying to make the races in Pathfinder from that second edition that I have. What was the problem with the race uh, change? And are we talking Pathfinder first or second edition? Pathfinder first edition, and it comes, you know, the translation from second edition to third edition uh, to 3.5 over to Pathfinder. And like gnomes are one that really get me because with every edition they seem to change. Uh, they they have a total flip on what they decide gnomes should be now. And uh, the the rock gnomes to me are the second edition rock gnomes. They are intelligent and unwise. One of the things that um, we constantly talk about and complain at each other about is once again, the dumbing down of content in later editions because they try and homogenize and try and uh, collapse, uh, you know, that an elf is an elf. It doesn't matter if they're, it doesn't matter if they're gray elf or high elf or wood elf or wild elf. And so a lot of that culture is lost because while they give you the stat changes, they don't allow you to have the culture that you had back in second edition with the kit books. And, you know, back in the day when wild elves were completely xenophobic and you walked into their forest and they would shoot you um, versus, you know, the gray elves uh, like to hide in their towers. And if they did adventure, they were the very, uh, they were the very cold, uh, very book learned, uh, uh, methodical, mechanical people. And so a lot of that is lost in later editions. So something that Brandon was doing on the stat lines was trying to replicate what they had in the older days of before it got all collapsed into one race for each one or one and a half races for each one. I see. So you're trying to differentiate stats based on their, uh, their cultural background. That's pretty good. Yes. Well, one problem, the one problem that she's been talking about is that Wizards wants every race to fit in every setting, and that doesn't work. You, there's no there's no orcs in Dragonlance because we've been going back to that one. So there's no half orcs. You can't just put half orcs in it because Forgotten Realms has it. They did exactly and, that with Dragonborn. They they yes. threw them into every setting, and they'd never been there before. Yeah, yeah that's don't remind I wrote me. 
the rule book, it says tieflings, dragonborn, half orcs, half elves. These don't exist here. They just and don't. There's no half. The, the, the races can't uh, interbreed. And then we deal with the players who are like, as soon as you write that that race is not in your game, they're like, I really want to play this race. Can you make an exception for me? I'm like, tieflings just do not exist in this world as a possible player race. I'm sorry. Well, can't I have been like this planar dimensionally traveled, da, 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 and I was half dragon blood, da, 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 da. no. <laughs> I'm, one no. Half, I'm, I'm one half angel, one half demon, 30% vampire, 20% uh, werewolf, and 5% Czechoslovakian. We played in a game with that exact character that you just described. It was a one-shot con game where Wait, he what? came in with the, Wait, what? with that half troll, half this, half that. And you're like, how many halves are there? And Alice and I just came in with a simple wizard, and then she was a, a monk rogue. And the kid just got so unhappy that he was not this combat monster star in the group in comparison that he just got up and left after a while. My favorite yeah. character there was something similar to that. We were playing in a party with a, a half dragon, half or tiefling, Asimir, half elf, half orc, um, like half giant, and we all had the same father. Well, if they, I should also mention that the GM for that one shot, uh, he ended up saying that uh, he didn't give people parameters. And so Brandon and I came in with the lowest possible parameters possible. So we went, we came in with, well, only core races and um, 25 points. The kid that was the half, like of five different races halves, he had like six, nothing below a 16 on his stats. And, you know, me over here, I had an eight on one of my stats. And then to, and I was a, a, a rogue monk who was, sneak attacking when I stunned. And so he's like, how are you doing more damage than me? This sucks. And he just stormed off and he's like, I'm going to go get a drink. And he never came back. I think that's a very, um, I, I mean, I think that's pretty common amongst younger gamers, at least it used to be. And I know a few people that just never grew out of it. And that's kind of sad because I have sat at games with a few adults that behaved like that. Um, but man, if there, it seems like too, there there can be some ways that you know we can kind of direct people, maybe away from, the, you know, to uh, I, I guess to start to to start to see um, that the game can be played in other ways too. Um, because yeah, it's like um, the game isn't just about one player. Yeah. Also, it's your stats and what you have on the sheet of paper isn't necessarily going to be what makes you the most powerful or MVP or the best team player. It is how you utilize your resources. It's uh, like in one game that I played this week, I had nothing to offer in a specific fight, but I knew that the creatures that we were fighting were light sensitive. So I pulled out my mirror as I was running up to them and I just started flashing my mirror and redirecting the light into their eyes and giving them negatives. And it actually saved mm -hmm. our fighter a lot of damage because all of a sudden they had to take neg two to hit and it saved him a lot of damage. And that's what my character at the time could offer. And you know, it's being resourceful, figuring out what you have. So yeah. I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, the, it doesn't matter what's on your, your character sheet because the, the most powerful thing that you have at the table is what's sitting in your skull. Yeah, then you end up with the uh, big problem in 3rd edition when there's certain monsters completely over immune to certain classes. Like, uh, tr ever try to uh, kill stone golems with a wizard? Not going to happen. 
Yeah, that's why I would never use any monster like that. I felt it was completely unfair. Yeah, we uh, we had somebody ambush the party at a, a module with, uh, I think, six stone golems, and the, the wizard and the rogue went to go see a movie. <laughs> we um, This was back in Living City, and uh, I have a very good friend of mine. Uh, he was playing a rogue, and I forget exactly what led up to this, but every person had their own challenge that they had to fight at one point. It was like kind of like a deck of many challenges and he's playing a rogue and he got pulled a minor death that he had to fight. This combat went, I think like 30 rounds or something with him doing everything he could to buff his AC just so he wouldn't get whacked and uh, the, the minor death swinging and missing and then him hitting it for like one two points of damage at a time uh and it was just this total battle of attrition and by the, the whole table was into it because it was like they looked at this they're like he's never gonna win this and he ended up pulling it out so it was amazing awesome <laughs> so one last thing somebody brought up tieflings and that's a race that just aggravates me to no end simply because they didn't put Asimar on the same footing and give you that option, that for some reason the evil race is is something that we should push forward while we hold the good race back as uh, the player option. And so that's aggravated me to no end since they did well, that. They also didn't give us the Dirtalisi uh, tieflings, which were the cool tieflings, instead of the just, hey, look, I'm half-demon tieflings. What is the Dirtalisi tiefling? All of his tieflings, they were plane touched. They were touched by the infernal planes, but they weren't automatically with the devil horns and the tail. They all had a unique look. And they call him Dirtalisi because he was the illustrator for Planescape. And uh -huh. I wasn't a big fan of his art, but his his tieflings had character. They they didn't look just like, hey, I'm, you know, demon spawn. I agree with you, and I never knew that that term for those tieflings. I always heard the Planescape tieflings was the term I've always heard. And Planescape, Planescape tieflings, I don't have a problem with, but I do have a problem with modern tieflings. And, uh, yeah. So uh, what's your problem with them? Well, so... I am someone that doesn't understand why, as we go forward in D&D &D and a lot of these games, why we need to keep propelling people to play more and more evil characters in games. Um, because that, to me, it we all play different ways and we can play evil or we can play good uh, equally if we want to at our tables. Personally, for me, I'd rather not play evil. But as we go forward and you look at the content, there's more and more games that gear towards... Uh, stacking the deck towards encouraging you to make evil characters, such as Tieflings and certain other games that I won't, you know, get into. Uh, and to me, that that bothers me. There's there are two games right now that I really want to GM, and I am trying to handpick my tables because it can so easily become basically uh, people coming in and playing playing absolutely chaotic evil characters and be completely justified. And I don't want to do that. I want to run some leverage style games or Firefly style games instead. So I have to like go, uh, can I trust this player not to come in and just be a total dirtbag? Well, to your point, uh, that's why I really can't stand the Warlock class. I mean, I oh, don't think a hero should be making a deal with an Eldritch power. I completely agree with you. Warlock's a class that I don't like either. And now, uh, in fact, and Pathfinder, the witch class, bothers me, too, for that same reason. 
I, um, and now that said, there's no wrong way to play, but I don't like the way that the some of these game developers are stacking the decks. And I understand that they're seeing games, video games like GTA, where you play a really huge scumbag and it gets people to buy the, the game and it makes them money. But at the same time, give us equal footing. Just like, you know, you push the tiefling forward, fine. Give us equal footing in the Asimar. Don't make it so that the GM has to go uh, through a bunch of hoops to make the Asimar one of the playable races too. Give us equal footing at the very least. My biggest problem with the war, uh, the Warlock class is it's pretty much just a reskinned cleric. Yeah, you don't you lose the turning, but you're still getting your powers from you know your sugar daddy up in you know <laughs> wherever the outer planes, <laughs> and it's really just a reskinned cleric. the The concept's still the same. Yeah, I see where you're coming from with that. Yeah, I mean, you're still bonded to uh, some sort of otherworldly power, except with the uh, the cleric, where it's an act of worship and it's kind of this, uh, "Hey, you're worshiping me. I'm providing you with power. You're spreading my word." It's mysterious and sinister, and I can do whatever I want. I, I, okay. Yeah, I, I, I see the cleric argument, and I actually like that. Uh, it's very true. And I've dealt with clerics that have had that exact, that exact buy-in. That, you know, I've got my powers from a deity, but I don't see this person as religious, more kind of touched by religion, and therefore gains power. And I kind of want to explore that as I go on, which is pretty much the way that the warlocks go. Um, I'm not a big fan of the warlock class either. When it came out in 3rd edition, it had a huge following. And I think a lot of that comes from... Some people avoid spellcasters because they don't want to go through the books and learn a bunch of different spells. Uh, and they also are say, say to themselves, well, at some point I'm going to have nothing to do because I'm going to have cast all my spells and I'll just be out. And the warlock kind of gets around that. Plus, like the 90s, edgelords are back. <laughs> the grim dark darkness. Yeah. They never went away. <laughs> Um, well, one, uh, well, one, one thing, uh, you know, going back to your uh, statement on clerics about how some of them uh, just want to be touched by religion. See, that's that's not a cleric, though. A cleric is a true believer. It's someone who's bought in so completely that they agree 100 percent. And they're so zealous that the deity looked down and said, OK, you're my man. Ping. You have all these powers. Because you are my representative on Earth. Now, a person who's kind of okay with that, kind of not very religious, they would not be chosen to be a cleric. Or they just never make it past the first couple of levels. Right, right. They, they Brian, looks like Brian is gently prodding us towards our next topic <laughs> of choice. I think okay. that's Brandon's choice at that point. So, Brandon? Ah, am I the next one? Yeah, because we're going lowest up. Yep. Okay. Well, um, something that when Alice was telling me that I should come up with a topic was how you'll come to certain groups and or certain people when you're looking for a group, and they're like, oh, I'll play anything. And then you say, okay, well, we're going to play Pathfinder. We're going to play D&D. Oh, I don't want to play that because that's not a role-playing game. That's just a combat game. Or if you go to somebody else and, uh, you know, we're going to play uh, Vampire the Masquerade or something. And they're like, oh, 
God, no, that's, there's no, there's no conflict in that game that you can resolve or something like that. And just this perception that some people have that this is a role-playing game and that's a combat game and that these are the boxes that we need to put those games in. And I just wanted to hear what you guys, uh, your experiences and thoughts about something like that is. I have a list of over, I think it's like 2,500 things that I can't do. And most of it is playing games against type. Uh, you know, playing the uh, you know playing vampire when, we, when I tried to set it in Oahu by night, the absolute worst setting you can put a vampire game in. And it's just you know you can play anything and anything. If you want to play a uh, you know you want to play a happy go lucky where or a werewolf, uh, I have you know I ran a werewolf who when he had a, uh, when people issued challenges to him for rank, he would always use NBA trivia. So it, yeah, you uh, you know some people just they certain games have reputations, but you can you can well I say that you there's certain games that you can't uh, break away from how they're supposed to be played because they're just badly written. Uh, Iron Kingdoms was a perfect example of that, but most games you can bend it so to break away from the stereotype. Personally, I think that that stereotype in a lot of games is a perception that. Uh, is overinflated, and I think it's something that um, people need to, if they delved more into it, it would easily go away. This is coming from a filter where I've played a very large number of games. This is what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, is learn as many possible tabletop role-playing games. And the truth is, it all comes down to rolling dice and playing a character. And you just do it slightly differently and add it differently or multiply differently. And if you can't see that, it, it, you know, it, you're taking away from your own possibilities, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just that certain, well, uh, certain games are badly designed so that they forget to add like a social element. Um, I, I mentioned Iron Kingdoms. If you want to make a social role, the rules are pretty much just wing it. There's no, uh, there's actually no mechanics for that kind of. Uh, play style, but if you want to get into a fight, they've got about seventy pages on that. Well, doesn't that go back to uh, first edition? Now, Iron Kingdoms. Uh, I, I have that book. Uh, I don't, or I think I do. Uh, that's the one where you kind of pick two different classes and you mash yep. them together to be your character. Okay. Yeah, we were going to play it. We were. This, this is really old. Uh, we we played it. Uh, mess with around with it back uh, with the old group. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, about ten years old, I think. That I love the book. I haven't played it yet. I really wanted to, but uh, right. and uh, but if you're going with it doesn't have social mechanics and that means it's bad for social. Well, so and I, I follow exactly what you're saying, but you know a lot of people stand up for old school D and D uh, where it didn't have rules for almost anything other than a fight and say that you can do everything with that. Right. Well, what I mean by that is I said they don't have social. They they have like nine stats, but none of them are social. Uh, you actually, if you raise your uh, charisma or your diplomacy up, you when you decide to talk to somebody, they have to decide what skill uh, or what stat that skill would apply to in that uh, situation. And usually it doesn't. Realize, gotcha. though, realize that Iron Kingdoms uh, came out of a miniature war game. So oh. the way that it was written, you know, very much has that. And I swear that I felt like it was longer than 10 years ago. So I guess it wasn't that old of a game, but. Oh, I, was, um, I was huge into War Machine. I had a, I had about 5,000 points of Signar. I, I had so many 
championship tokens. I used them for focus for the big boys. What and, I did. Oh, please continue. Oh no, I'm just saying is like it was it was it was war game the RPG. It was. And it was more war game the RPG. Okay, you've proven me wrong. It's 10 years old. I apologize. Um eight, eight years old. Yeah, 2012. Um I just feels longer ago. But oh, one thing I will say about the, the game, while it is as a whole, maybe not, you know, maybe not your cup of tea, because I think that there are elements of every role-playing game that are good. I don't think it was totally badly written because I remember reading through that and us adapting certain bits of that into our Pathfinder, well, into our 3-5 game. And uh, we even took, you know, some of the classes and warped them a bit so th because there was some nice flavor to some of the aspects of them. I loved the flavor of taking these two different classes and mashing them together to make your character. Like I say, I have not played this. I read it when it first came out, and I really did want to play it, and the art's gorgeous. I'm looking at right now. But that aspect, because it reminded me of one of my absolute favorite video games of that's Titan Quest. It's a very Diablo-style game where that you pick two different trees and make your character. And so if you want to be the fire-throwing archer, you take your fire wizard plus you know the archery tree. And it was just tons of fun. And so, but I, I do not remember almost anything about this game. So I can't speak to any specifics on it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, well, I'm trying to think of other games that are known for having one thing. I mean, Werewolf is notoriously combat heavy. Um, oh. When most people's answer to everything in that game is Krynos. I completely agree with you on that being a general perception. But, uh, and, what I remember when I first started playing, um, when I first started gaming, uh, the group that I was hanging out with was going to teach me Rifts as my first game. And one of their things was talking about their werewolf game. And every time he talked about his werewolf game, it just turned me off more because it was always about how they went and killed this other pack, went Krynos and just eviscerated. And it was just always stories about massacres. And I had absolutely no interest of, in werewolf whatsoever because of it fast forward two years later and i'm hanging out with my friend mikey and mikey really wants to run a werewolf game and i'm like no no uh, anything but that i do not want to play chaotic evil massacring monsters running around doing nothing but doing that and he said whoa you have no idea what werewolf is then so let's sit down and have a 20 minute conversation about the lore of the world and what werewolves are there for they are there to fight off the worm they are there to protect the world they are there as children of gaia and after i learned the lore and was handed the book to read about that i was like wow this is a completely different game and ever since then i have loved werewolf and will play it anytime under the right group now i learned correct group so you sound more like a story player, and I thought you had described yourself, uh, or in past conversations, maybe I thought you had described yourself as more of a combat mechanics player. Did I totally miss that? I'm both. I'm an R-O-L-E player and an R-O-L-L player. If you watch our BWK segments, or if you sit down and play with me mm -hmm. long enough, you will find out that I um, I definitely min-max, uh, and I think mm -hmm. of out-of-the-box situations, but I am very mechanical in the way that I try and get stuff. So, you know, if I can give people a negative two I, on that dice curve, I know that I will do that. But at the same time, I am someone who will do accents and uh, do different voices and, you know, do all sorts of different things. I, I do both very, very heavily and throw myself 100% into both. Mechanics are very important to me. So something that 
I, I guess, yeah. It, go ahead, Glenn. Some games are written so that the, the focus is intentional. Like um, going obscure, uh, but sticking with White Wolf, the uh, Street Fighter RPG. One of the best comedy games ever written. Unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be comedy. But in that one, uh, everything is settled with martial arts. I mean, if you get shortchanged at the grocery store, the the uh, cashier knows martial arts too. <laughs> so that quickly turns into um, uh, pretty much just uh, yeah, uh, chop sake all over the place. But if you tried to play it as a uh, uh, you know, if you, if you tried to like role play it too seriously, you're losing the charm of the game. You're cut but down I don't know many life. other games that allow you to suplex a bull. Yeah, I'd like to get my hands on a hard copy of Street Fighter at some point. I don't have one, but uh, I think that it'd be a really fun game to just throw at my friends once in a while because they just go, what the heck? And they always love getting that reaction once in a while. Oh, I had my players making up uh, uh, rules for their martial arts, like when the ninjas attack the guy that knew Kung Fu, and he pointed out that they were required by law to stand in a straight line and fight him one at a time. <laughs> There's um, If you want a martial arts role-playing uh, game that's really good, uh, you should look up Ninjas and Super Spies. Going back towards Palladium. Yep, 41 different styles of martial arts. I loved it. That's one of the ones out of the, the Palladium universe that I always hear the highest remarks for. Uh, is that Ninjas and Super Spies really did things right. I have never played it or read it, but uh, I'm interested by all means. I have Why both uh, that book and the, its sequel, Mystic China. Great stuff. Ooh. Um, um, Brian brought up an interesting point I'd like to uh, I'd like to ask you guys about because it really goes along with uh, Brandon's topic, the perception of R-O-L-E players versus R-O-L-L players. Because Brandon and I, um, over the you know, 20 some years that we've uh, been gaming with a variety of people, we often get that uh, you can't be R-O-L-E players and R-O-L-L players. And they're always surprised that we're both because we come in with, you know, with effective characters. Uh, we, we try and make sure that we are playing to the mechanics of the system and trying to trying to maximize our efficiency without being over overly twinky and breaking the game. But at the same time, we are both very R-O-L-E players and we get a lot of, oh, you can't be that, pick a lane. R-O-L-E versus R-O-L-L. Yep, there you go, Ripples. That well, as reminds a, me. Oh, go ahead. Okay, no problem. Uh, as a player, I'm actually both as well. Uh, for example, in a fifth edition game I'm playing in, I actually rolled up a Cobalt Paladin. And uh, I did that to take advantage of this uh, rule he has um, called Pack Tactics, which will give me advantage if I'm standing next to another party member. At the same time, uh, I get to play as what's usually regarded as a cowardly monster, as uh, this brave, stalwart, helpful, good person who's three feet tall. And everyone at the table loves him. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a good experience. I think that was one of the big attractions to the Halfling Paladin when 3rd Edition first allowed them. And there was a big rise um, just of, you know, I saw Halfling Paladins playing Living City and Living Greyhawk back in those days, as well as in my home game. Uh, 
and it's just that same draw. Now, as the kobold, you get a little bit of a different feel on it since it's the normally cowardly monstrous race and such. Uh, to your point, well, Alice. I was just going to say the halfling paladin in, in third edition was also hilariously broken because there wasn't a saving throw it couldn't pass at like yeah. third level. Yeah, that was pretty awesome on them. Same thing with uh, you know, the dwarfs a lot of times because most of your saves are going to be covered by their plus two. Um, but to your comment, I remember when we played Dragonstar when they had a living game. So we all showed up with our characters and our friend Sam is like, oh man, I can't wait to see your guys. And all I came in with was I wanted to be a halfling in an X-Wing. And so I was a halfling pilot. I was so far from being min-maxed or anything. And then he came in with somebody who was firing a laser rifle that was doing all this damage and such. And we just looked at him. We're like, Oh my God. And he's like, that's what I thought you guys were all going to be doing. I remember that we were effective, but we didn't go looking for the most broken item. <laughs> he did find the most broken item, but dragon star was notoriously unbalanced. As soon as you hit that weapons chart, that weapons chart was notoriously unbalanced. <laughs> Well, unbalanced can be okay. I mean, as long as everybody understands that the, when the rule of cool is in effect. Agreed. But in a living campaign, well, unbalanced can be pretty dangerous because uh, you have much less. You don't have um, a GM on GM agency in a game like in RPGA back in the day. It was uh, very much you were the ref at the table, and it could be pretty. Yeah, there, there's not that same agency on the GM side. Oh, so gotcha. unbalanced okay. with the bread and butter of riffs. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> every, uh, every book had, uh, I think was it somebody described the Western book. It's like you could be a farm or a ranch hand, bar girl, uh, army scout, or Apache god. Yep. Everything was playable, no matter how ridiculous it was. But that was, uh, that was part of the beauty of it, too, because you could set the power level. It's like, all right, we're going to be gods, or we're going to be sewer rats. Yeah, for me, I think it was, uh, I, I don't know, I, I started um, playing these games as just D&D &D first edition, and uh, I was pretty young, so it was always, you know, about playing the rules, but I was always trying to figure out, you know, well, how does the story fit into that? And um, when my friends and I would try to make up stories, you always felt like you had to rulify it somewhat, and it wasn't until um, we started playing games like uh, Call of Cthulhu and Cyberpunk that I started to really see um, that as long as there was an adventure there and the outcome was uncertain, that was really kind of what I was into at the table. Um, and I don't know, you know, it was like I said, it was games like that that I think kind of shifted that paradigm for me. You can power game Call of Cthulhu. It's not oh, you hell, but you can do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I think it shifted that paradigm. Um, it was also more challenging too, because you know uh, you're coming away from one way of thinking and, and into another, and trying to figure out you know how to create adventures and things that are challenging for people. Um, and you know, some sometimes it it doesn't 
it, it just doesn't work. You know, you're you're trying to come up with a story, and it just it you can't get all the pieces together, um, and you have to go back to the drawing board and start over. At least I I struggle with that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I just it, it seems like that's always been sort of the thing for me is somewhere in the middle, right? You need a you need a determiner that leaves that outcome uncertain. But I I was never really drawn to games where um, say like a combat mechanic uh, started to make determinations about the play, you know, started to change the player's uh, character's behavior. If they if they had a character that they wanted to behave a certain way, and let's say a combat mechanic was in the game uh, that would alter that behavior, that always kind of made me, I don't know, I felt a little cheated because, I don't know, that's just me. Brian? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's really funny you bring it up that way because a lot of times when we're dealing with uncertainty, failures create better stories than successes because that's just, uh, it makes more entertainment and memorable, uh, stories. And, you know, you failed this one time, but later on you come back and you do so much better. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, that's part of the human element. I mean, we strive to overcome and we often fail along the way. If we don't have some aspect of failure and overcoming that failure, then we've lost part of the human element. Yeah, so sometimes failing on your dice rolls feels better than making it. It's more fun because there's a better story that comes out of it. I think, Brandon, you were going to say something? Yeah, I wanted to ask what what you mean exactly by the uh, there's a, a combat element that adjusts role playing because when you say that and I'm, I know I'm not thinking of the same thing I'm like well the existence of combat and those failures at combat definitely curb certain behaviors because you're like is this worth my life the way that I run uh, uh, you know D and D Pathfinder. Uh, by all means, death is going to be something that does come to players. Just because you came with a great backstory and such does not give you protection. I killed my first 5th edition character this week, which was is not that impressive since I've only run four sessions of 5th edition, one of which had no combat in it at all. So, uh, like, can it... Pretty impressive. Sorry. Um... I was going to give like maybe an example. Um, I believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, my system lore is probably not nearly as in-depth as y'all's. Uh, there's uh, flavors of Pathfinder where, um, let's say, you can fire a missile weapon into combat and not risk striking um, an ally. Um, so, you know, it's just little things like that that, that would embolden um, someone with a missile weapon to say, well, okay, I can, I can just sit back here and use this missile weapon all day. It's the most practical thing. Um, even though your friend might be right in front of something and there's no way that you can hit them. Um, that I'd probably make a house rule for or something. Um, other things are, uh, like we had a rule in our game at one point where um, you could choose to move uh, or attack as as an action and the problem with that became that people that moved within melee range moved within melee range so that they could get attacked um and so no one did um so again you know you have a a mechanic there that's that's sort of um hindering you know albeit you know it's it's combat fight or flight behavior of the character but it's hindering the behavior of of the character a little bit i think 
Well, there's realism and then there's um, laying that aside to have a good game. So there's we have to have a balance where it's not too unrealistic to break immersion. But at the same time, we have to, we do have to lay aside some realistic elements just to keep the game going. Well, I also think that there we're talking about you know different breeds of players and different uh, uh, different levels of being veteran players, and some of the newer players and some types of veteran players, depending on how they were steered or re-steered, as I think Brian was mentioning earlier, steering people, uh, they don't like penalties. They don't like uncertainty. They like to be in there just to win. This is a video game to them. They got to win, 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 win. And it's not so much about the story. And um, the penalty of that being that they don't, you know, they, they'll never take the complications that will really strengthen the long-term story. They'll never want to, uh, they'll never want to play a system that has the friendly fire opportunity, which, you know, we all have really funny, silly, friendly fire stories. I'm certain. I know I can think of three or four off the top of my head, but there are people who are like, that's not the way I want to play. This is not the video game mentality that is becoming a popular issue. Well, uh, I think what can handle that is just a simple conversation before uh, the game even starts. And you sit them down and explain that. And if they're okay with that, great, they play. And if not, well, okay, sorry. <laughs> session zero. No, that's session, session negative one. Before you invite them to session zero <laughs> is, you know, let's go out to dinner or let's yeah. jump into, to, you know, Discord or something and talk. Uh as to the comment about the specific example, I exactly follow what you're understanding about precise sh or about shooting into melee and Pathfinder. The feat is precise shot, and it makes it so, if I remember it correctly, you can't hit your friends and you avoid the negative that they're providing from being in combat. Uh, by all means, GMs can still give you cover uh, so that you can make that shot really hard. But I've seen many people who have a problem with that specific example. And uh, a guy that I knew, this is 20 years ago, but he talked about the Warhammer Quest game that he was in. Uh, his elf was uh, shooting at a mummy. A dwarf was engaged in melee with it, and he misses. The GM has him roll. Uh, he hits the dwarf. The dwarf disengages from the mummy and comes after the elf going, I'm going to break that bow now. I mean, some of the stuff, oh, what was it, the shotguns from Vampire? Yeah. Uh, well, a pump-action shotgun, as written, could dismember a uh, was an, a, uh, an antediluvian uh, fourth-generation vampire with all of his abilities because he was just so good. And if you were going to be playing, like, the, the combat monkey, everybody had shotguns. Oh, my God, the Remington uh, pump-action was worse than the atom bomb. <laughs> and, wow. Because you could unload, uh, you you could unload all uh, five shells in one round. The uh, penalty to hit was negated by the fact it's a shotgun, and so you're dealing like sixty points of damage plus whatever your successes were in a game where everybody had seven wounds. Which yeah, is interesting. I remember that weapon because uh, spread patterns on shotguns uh, aren't generally as wide as people make them out to be unless it's like literally a sawed off shotgun and it's in which case you have very little range well it was just the rules as written the, the yeah. shotguns yeah. were 
you know, could tank it, could take out armored vehicles because <laughs> the, the way wow. it was completely unrealistic, yeah. obviously. Sounds like shotguns. That's a contradiction in terms. Right. Right. Sounds like someone who never fired a gun in his life made that rule. Yes, it does. Well, uh, let's see. Did we have any more to say about this topic or did we need to move on? I think we've all rambled on about that and some other topics for a while. It's been a good discussion. So, uh, yeah, next initiative. All right, let's see. Who is next? Don't look at me. I rolled a 17. I believe Caleb. It was Caleb and then me. So it's Caleb's turn. Um, but I, I went first. <laughs> yeah, oh, wait. We're going no, reverse. Sorry, it's, it is you, Glenn. Yeah, it's Glenn. Glenn, because oh, I'm Glenn. lost. Yep, I'm on 19. You're up, Glenn. Oh, that's right. You added two of them. Uh, let's go with uh, making, since I just upgraded my uh, layout software and my uh, hardware, let's make, uh, when you're writing a game, having the right equipment for the right job. Uh, like I said, I just upgraded from Lucid to Zara and discovered that um, I can actually make a, a much better book. So I'm having to rewrite an entire or having to relay out a, a 200 plus page book. And if you're writing a game, uh, I've seen a lot of people try to make their game, especially for like the DMs Guild, in Word. And it just makes it look cheap. Or it looks it looks very generic. I don't know if anybody who's in the industry has seen stuff like that. I, by all means, have seen more than my fair share of products that are out there for people are charging you money. Um, I have bought a few of them, and then you get it, and you're like just looking at it. You haven't read the content, but just looking at it, you're like, this is the same as a handout that I would have gotten from my GM. And he didn't charge me to pass me that handout. Not a good handout, just like, here, this is a little brief about my setting or something like that. And you just look at it, and you you feel that you wasted your money as soon as you really lay eyes on the real thing. Um, and it's been going on by all means a long time. Now, I don't feel that way about my, you know, first edition D&D books. They, for the time, they had a good look to them. Um, at the the other end, there are books that you can get and without ever playing the game, without reading it, you can feel that you got your money just by flipping through, looking at them uh, because they look beautiful. Those are obviously going to cost a ton of money. But um, bad layout and bad looks is not something that needs a ton of money to solve. 100% agree. And basic editing is another thing that doesn't take much money to solve because find a couple people that are passionate about your game, have them read through it, and they can, they can find a lot of typos and structural sentence structure issues that you might have missed because like all of us when we're writing, every once in a while, we'll, when we're going back and editing a passage, we accidentally forget that we wrote something already. So we reword the same thing in the next paragraph or even two sentences later, right? And we forget to delete to answer, the old. I was going to answer Ripple's question, does presentation and content quality always correlate? No, but usually it does. I would agree with that. But, you know, 
all of us who have written, we sometimes will leave artifacts of uh, old st stuff post-editing. And so if we just have one passionate friend who, or, you know, fan read through it, they'll probably catch most of those accidental sentence repeats reworded or the, you know, the occasional thing that the, uh, that the, uh, oh shoot, the auto, uh, Grammar auto check correct. doesn't catch. Yeah. Autocorrect and grammar check doesn't catch. The spell checking doesn't catch. And that can do a lot for a lot of products because I hate when I get a book and they didn't even go through basic editing. I sometimes think they didn't even use a spell checker because I'm like, <laughs> really? Um, because uh, like, I forget what, what book it was, but I recently was reading a game book and in it, it had um, hardness and it was H R A D N E S S. And I'm like, Really? You couldn't use a spell checker to find H-R-A-D-N-E-S-S. Hardness. <laughs> it's uh, going to that on the, the benefits of just having an editor, and you can fan source that stuff by all means. I did that for when Elements of Magic was going to their 3.5 version. Uh, I saw... Uh, we had just gotten Elements of Magic, the normal. I messaged Ranger Wicket. I'm like, oh my god, I love this product. I see that you guys are going to the new one. When is that going to happen? Because I'm not certain if we should bother uh, upgrading our game to this yet. And so he just sent me the the manuscript that was almost done. And so I spent some time reading through it and came up with, you know, uh, over a full page of minor things. That same thing, when I was a kid, you know, in high school, I read the Han Solo trilogy, and in there at one point, they set, they have his name as Ham instead. And to this day, that bugs me. It bugs me so much that when Alice and I were up at the Amazon store in Seattle last December, there was somebody in front of us, and she was talking with the checker, and she said that she's an editor for Amazon when he asked her what she did for the company. And so when they were finished with their conversation, I just wanted to – I just stopped her and said, I just want to say thank you for your job because you can read good fiction, but you won't realize it's good fiction or good anything if it didn't have an editor go through it. So you guys yeah. – probably going to laugh because this is not meant to contradict any of that but i watched uh one of uh, sandy peterson's uh youtube uh whatever you know recordings uh interviews just this past week uh where he talked about the first product that he'd ever worked on and uh the very first game product that he'd released i think with chaosium they'd asked him to do a bestiary and i want to say he said it was for RuneQuest, and they'd misspelled the name of the game right on the cover <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> yeah because uh, mutant chronicles had like four typos on the back page uh and i was told it was because their translator wasn't the best because it was going from swedish to english Um, but when I, my first job in the gaming industry was working for Reaper and, uh, Ed Pugh used to go on these long diatribes about how to write games. And the, one of the first things he told us is never edit your own work. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm facing that problem because, uh, I'm the only native English speaker at, at 3D Art Digital. So, uh, I'll send something in and then I'll take a look at it and go, oh, oh no, how did I miss this? Now I've got to go and correct everything I've done. Yeah, I have this bad habit of um, uh, of oversharing my work in progress because I never want to end up in the, those types of situations. And so, like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm done with these chapters. Anybody want to read it? <laughs> so I've got my in progress editor friends coming in and just reading and going, oh, you know, 
I passed it to Brandon and some other people. And Brandon's like, you need to stop passing it to so many people. I'm like, I passed it to three people. He's like, yeah, but you're not even done. I'm like, yeah, but this will make me, you know, this will let me go back and fix all my issues right now. Maybe I should try that. That sounds like a good idea. You know, it, it gets me in the mentality because it also, they can catch things while it's in progress that I need to adjust for later as well. So I'm like, well, if you're willing to read it, you know, it's got like six chapters done. Here's uh, six chapters of 10. Um, and then they can catch things. I'm like, oh yeah, that character's supposed to be there, not there. Thanks for, and going forward, it helps me adjust. Yeah, I'm currently editing a uh, 40K book for these guys. And uh, it was like the guy's first book that he had been commissioned to write. And he, keep, he I keep sending him stuff back and it's just, I'm chopping his book up with a chainsaw. And he finally sent me, a, after the third chapter, he sent me an email going, you're mad at me, aren't you? Oh, <laughs> a good editor should leave your page read, is the yeah. truth. No matter how amazing of a writer you are, how prodigy you are, a good editor will leave your page read. Because there's always going to be things that, no matter how talented or how much of a prodigy you are, there's always going to be things where you're missing from your brain to your fingertips. My dad was a uh, international tax attorney when he was still practicing. And so going through school, I'd always bring in my papers ahead of time. And they would come back dripping with red ink, basically, uh, to the point that my sister refuses to use a red pen when she looks at her son's stuff. Um, and so then go to college and all and you hear from all these teachers, oh, you know, don't take it personal. But when you get something back from me, I will have marked all over it with all this stuff. And then I keep getting papers back that only have, you know, about three things and good job at the bottom or something like that. And I'm like, um, did you lie to us, sir? And they're like, no, that I just really don't have. They're stylistic things, but it's not wrong. And then you end up with the editors that uh, they, they try to f force their opinion on the article, especially if you're, you don't include uh, certain things that they think should be included, but you're not getting paid to include those. Well, going to that, talking about that, we, uh, we can look at, the industry that everybody here in this channel works in has a very different perception on vocabulary than the mass populace these days because, um, and it's easier to get published with um, like-minded indie publishers for like story writing if you're not doing the gaming industry stuff than if you try and go mainstream because a mainstream editor these days tries to tell people that to get your stuff on the New York Times top 100 list or bestseller list, blah, blah, blah. You actually have to stick to like the top 200 most common words or 500 most common words. And you can deviate no more than 2% because you don't want people stumbling over your words, trying to figure out what the word is, slowing them down because it will take the immersion out of it. So you have to dumb everything down. So everything's under three syllables. And I was reading publication guidelines a few years back uh, for publication submissions. And I was just like, they basically want me to write for a three-year-old. I'm not publishing with them. There's no possible way I will ever go widespread publication now. I'm just going to go to these uh, indie publishers who want me because I can actually use sentences that made sense and could use the word intelligence without getting it flagged as a word that shouldn't be in there because it has too many syllables. Well, Stan the Man Lee uh, had a similar question to ask to him when uh, he was using some advanced vocabulary uh, when writing for Marvel. And uh, he always said, well, they can look it up. And you really can't argue with that success. 
that. I agree with that completely. My the one that I will always remember is Dragonlance Chronicles, and then I'm like, what's a cataclysm? And I had to go look that up. That's my opinion, but these days, you know, you go to big publication companies and they want people to be churning that out so fast and not under, you know, that n people need to not slow down from immersion and blah, blah, blah. If you want to make those top mm. lists. And so these big companies are always trying to find that next top list person. And these submission guidelines were just ridiculous. And I think that that that's a change in that mentality. And I think that going, I, I hope that we can push towards using bigger words that like Stanley says, people have to look up because I know that I ended up with a much larger vocabulary than a lot of my peers because I would read stuff that was way ahead and these huge words that I had to go and learn. Right. The persona not well now, but H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, a long time ago, we were having a discussion about him because he was being compared to Octavia Butler in uh, their writing styles. And uh, they said, when you read uh, Lovecraft, you need two things. You need a nightlight and a dictionary because the man uses huge words. And somebody said, well, you have to, you need to, he needs, if you're going to be successful today, you need to, you need to simplify it because, you know, like, because that's what sells today. And they, they, it was when they brought up, you know, comparing him to Octavia Butler. Then somebody else goes, yes, but, um, you know, the, the main difference is, is there's uh, no style of uh, fiction known as uh, Butlerian. I, I think that, uh, I think that we should return to the days where those older generations of writing were more acceptable because as much as uh, when I was a little kid, Hemingway bored the heck out of me as an adult, I'm like more kids should read Hemingway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I, I go back even further. Dumas. Oh my gosh. Yes. Dumas. Well, as a, in grade school, I was reading Shakespeare because my mother forced me to. So when I got an AP English in high school, it was hilarious because I was the only person raising my hand and I would argue with my teacher and like be like, no, and it states here, da, 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 da. And I would just be in this passionate debate because my mother had me reading, reading Shakespeare when I was in grade school. <laughs> well, I assume that uh, most everyone, most everyone's American and so... Um... In American high school, they would often have us actually read the Shakespeare aloud in the classroom. So uh, I kind of want you to imagine me sitting here as as a Southerner, as these poor Southern kids were trying to recite this old English with their thick Southern accents. Oh my gosh, that's epic! Yeah, that yeah, sounds it was, awesome. It, You'll have to was, perform that for me, please. It, it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, fantastic. Seriously, you need to play a character like that at, at one of my tables. I need to drag you to one of my tables and like have you do that old English in that Southern accent and that be your bard at the table. That'd be awesome. I would want to oh, record that. <laughs> thou hast aired. <laughs> to air is human. <laughs> but also as to the right equipment for the right job, well, we're doing a job right now. And, you know, there's by all means some problems that, you know, everybody's mic runs into, but hopefully I don't sound terrible. Everybody sounds pretty good to me most of the time. And then sometimes, you know, you're like, oh, we want to get an online game going. And then, you know, you get this person that it sounds like they've got a band practicing right next to their microphone and, you know, just horrible, screechy, scratchy sounds. 
Yeah, I just grabbed a uh, overhead boom mic from mine yesterday, and I got to admit, this thing is awesome now. Alice just got a uh, a nice mic, and uh, I'm getting one in a little while. Oh yeah, Blue Yetis are awesome. I I think I uh, I think I have my new tech geeky falling in love bit. It's uh, sitting above my head, and it's awesome. Yeah, same here. I'm just being terribly lazy and using my internal microphone. Your internal <laughs> microphone sounds great, actually. Well, it is a relatively new laptop, so that might be why. So, Glenn, for other, you know, right tool for the right job, is there a particular layout software that you would recommend over others that you know makes it look cheap? Because, you know, we have an audience here that might be interested in stuff like that. Well, I'm currently, I, I was using Lucid, which was because I had a um, problem with, I mean, the best one was apparently done by Adobe, but I hate renting software. That just, no. So I just bought Zara, and it's a fantastic one, but it can't do tables. It's ninety dollars, um, and it's I'm I'm I've finished the Mastara handbook for D and D, and I'm reformatting it because I can do so much more with this one. That's really cool. Yeah, for me, I definitely am using, uh, I was doing Corel Video Studio when I first started doing video editing. And over uh, the last few months, I decided, well, I have to transition to something more professional. And so now I self-taught myself with a couple questions asked by my, you know, asking some of my professional friends on how to do stuff in Adobe Premiere. And I've managed to finally transition myself completely over in about, about three or four months ago. And it is a massive difference uh, on that tool. It's really, really amazing. So I'm using the flagship stuff that, yeah, we've, we've got the Adobe stuff over here. Uh, mainly because I was somewhat familiar with it from classes uh, as far as, you know, like Photoshop and stuff. And I'd actually worked on a competitor that Adobe um, got most of their features from in the 90s, actually. Um, it, actually, that software, the software that uh, I was involved in was uh, called Picture Publisher. And it's the software that NASA used for their photo retouching. And uh, when they would, um, you know, mesh them all together. But anyway. Um, so we're using that and we're using InDesign and, um, mainly because of my wife's experience in the, uh, she had experience as a publishing assistant and doing layout, um, for publications for, uh, different magazines, uh, they're mostly professional magazines, not like, you know, like Forbes or anything like that, but, uh, like state owned, uh, there was like the state travel magazine here in Texas that she worked on for a while and some other stuff anyway. Um, so she had a lot of experience with that. Um, the one thing that I will say is that even the expensive stuff, um, doesn't always have all the, the features that you would expect it to have or, or it's clunky in places. And I think it's mainly because they don't, I guess maybe they don't feel like they need to. And so they don't have to spend the time on it, but like, like I'm looking at, um, we just moved some pages around in in our book uh, to make room for more art. And in doing so, I looked at it and realized I've got to rebuild the entire index. And it looks like <laughs> I've got to do it by hand. <laughs> so it's little things like that. Um, I mean, they have an index 
capability, but it's not, um, you have to go in and select, you know, okay, well, this word goes to the index from this page and then rebuild it. And then you paste it back in and it's, it's not quite as smooth as, you know, you would always think it would be at everything, but. Lucky my, my uh, index building was me uh, and my mother yelling at each other with uh, two computers on at the same time. <laughs> That's kind of how we edit over here. Well, she goes through the editing process, right? So I'll, I'll finish something and then I'll print it out and then she'll go over it with like red pen. And then when we're done with that, I'll make the changes. And then when we think we have a final version, uh, I'll print it out again and she'll go through it and read it. And I'll have it up in the editing window to make sure that there's, you know, like doubly sure that there's no mistakes, you know, like that once I've changed it and fixed it, we didn't, I didn't introduce something. But um, yeah, I, by and large, though, I'm, I'm satisfied with InDesign, but uh, it's, you know, you you are, you're having to pay a subscription fee for it and they can turn it off. Let's not get into how much BS that is these days. <laughs> That's why I went with Zara, because once you buy it, it's yours. That's I, beautiful. Well, I, I counted how much money I paid to Lucid over the three years it took me to build my book. And it was literally in the thousands. Not to mention, like, crud that Adobe pulls on people that the versions that you bought from, uh, like, two, I forget, it was, like, 2016 uh, and older. They sent out a, a letter to all their license holders saying that uh, because of a uh, because of a legal contesting mumbo-jumbo, blah, 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 all old licenses of copies of the program you bought, not rented from them, were no longer legal to use and you needed to upgrade to a certain level or older. And if you actually logged online with any of those old versions of um, Adobe Photoshop right now, you would actually be told that it is a pirated software, even though you have the legit copy of the hard case in your drawer. That was yeah, absolute BS. Reckon. I have, uh, I think the one that I got burned on the worst, I had uh, Maya. Uh, which, it, I mean, that was like a couple of grand um, 3D software. And uh, it was the 2011 edition. And I think a couple of years later, it was just like, you can't even install it. Yeah, uh, so, sorry, please continue, Brian. No, yeah, I mean, that was basically the experience. So, but, you know, so just, you know, be aware of that. But I, I think if you've been burned by that, um, that I think we're past that phase and now we're in the phase of everything's on the cloud. So just be aware, you know, um, if you store your data on the cloud, it's backed up, but you're sharing it. And, um, these things are, are licensed, you know, some of them, some of the expensive software, and there's a lot of great alternatives. There's stuff like, uh, what's it, um, GIMP, you know, if you don't like Photoshop, you can try GIMP and, you know, that's, that's one al alternative. There are. Wait. Again. Well, sorry, what? What's the name of that software again? GIMP. G-I-M-P. GIMP? Yeah. 
GIMP has yep. been around for a long time. GIMP. It's actually, it's actually not bad. I'm just really accustomed to Photoshop interface because I, that's what I've been using forever. Mm -hmm. But, um, but even if you got, are able to buy something like czar, just be aware that that does not stop them from breaking your content later on because of stupid things. It, um, at least though, you still won't be investing as much money as people who are renting the software. Like me. <laughs> me too. I, uh, for Black Friday, I saw the Adobe Black Friday sale and I begged Brandon, I'm like, uh, can we please invest in this? And he's like, how many of these pieces of software are you going to use? I'm like, seven. And I, I am actually using seven, so therefore I'm okay. It's totally worth the yeah. price. Yeah, are you using the, uh, what's the, with Auto, uh, I can't even think of the name of it now. The, um, I guess y'all, y'all have the video. You're using the video editing too, aren't you? I'm using Adobe Premiere. Yes. Premiere Pro. Yeah. And I only recently found out speaking of right tool for the right job, Glenn, I, because I'm mostly self-taught except for asking my professional friends a question, if I'm really stuck, I didn't know that using the Adobe, um, Adobe suite encoder was much faster than using the encoders native to Adobe Premiere Pro. So I'd been doing it the slow way. And every time I finished a video, I would just go and hit the export and uh, do that. And it would take like four hours for a four hour video. I, the other night I needed to go away. So I queued it and I opened up the encoder and it was my first time using it. All of a sudden I saw that the four hour video was going to take an hour. I'm like, why didn't anyone tell me this? Hmm. Yeah. There's little things like that all through the, um, all through the Adobe packages. Um, there are different, uh, there'll be like different metadata tags and things, uh, depending on how you export it as PDF, for example if you're trying to build your books. And so your formatting can change depending on if you export it as a PDF from uh, InDesign or you print it to PDF through your print driver, things like that. So You sound auto-tuned again. Robot on us. I didn't know oh, if that no. was just my headset or if she was doing that, so I didn't speak no. up. Yeah, it's auto-tuning. Yeah, you sound like a bad transformer. She likes Star How Trek. am I now? Perfect. Okay, awesome. Um, now I'm trying to remember what I say. Oh, yeah, and with, uh, with the format change that you're talking about, Brian, you have to be really careful this day because thing with companies like through Oh no! About <laughs> what format that you are going to do? What you, want, what you need to do it the way. Repeat everything after bink bonk bink. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you you keep starting out okay, Alice, and then you kind of static up again. She's saying she'll fix it, and that we should keep okay. talking. <laughs> okay. 
Well, we're actually almost to the uh, product placement segment, but I feel like I wanted to hear what Alice had to say so bad. I, sh <laughs> I should be fixed now. Am I fixed? For now. Okay. What I was saying is that for um, for the fact that you were talking about thing, content changing the format as you are exporting in different ways, you have to be really careful about that these days because companies like DriveThru, if you want to put it up there, they're very particular about you know it meeting this format or that format. And so that uh, when people get it, it's going to work for their new uh their new mobile digital or blah, blah, blah. And so I have friends who are trying to do that. And whenever things come out slightly altered because they went through a different process in exporting that day, they're like, oh, shoot, I have to do this again. Yep, absolutely. Um, we had, uh, I think one of the places that bit us uh, pretty good was when we were creating, uh, in particular, PDFs that were fillable forms. Uh, we won an export type. We lost the uh, fillable. And uh, so people had character sheets they couldn't fill out. That's funny. Um, also, just as a note to people, always double check that the form fillable that you're working with will save on your computer. We just had a friend who was making his character, spent you know over an hour learning a game a little bit, making his character. He saved it, he closed it, he opened it back up, and it's all blank again. And I'm like, oh, no. oh that's horrible. I, I work with pen and paper or taking it down in a notebook first. Oh, that's tragic. That makes me sad. Luckily, I was taking notes on my end. Uh, I didn't have everything that he had done. It's kind of it's a, a Third Eye Games uh, Apocalypse Prevention Incorporated, so it's somewhat similar to uh, a World of Darkness. And so I didn't know where his bonus points had gone, but I knew where almost all of his decisions up to those bonus points had gone. So I could shortcut him a bunch. Well, silver lining then, at least. Yeah. Well, um, if we don't have any more any any more pointers, if I could speak correctly, um, I suggest we go on into product placement, and we'll kind of go in reverse order here. Um, I don't know how uh, Brandon, I don't know how you and Lala want to split that up, but I figure y'all can figure that out. Um, so, if you want to start us out, Caleb, and tell us what your what it is that you do and what you're doing, and you can post any links you'd like in the uh, sure. channel. Sure. All right. Well, uh, as I said earlier, I was recently made a creative director for 3D Art Digital, and uh, they are a model and miniature making company. And my role uh, was to uh, write lore for uh, the world that uh, we're creating for uh, this Kickstarter called uh, Survivors of Sarath. And uh, we just started on Thursday. We just launched the Kickstarter, and it was fully funded in three hours. And wow. uh, yeah, we have over 50 different types of miniatures um, for 3D printers, a uh, whole bunch of different kinds of terrain, and uh, a lot of unique and interesting characters. Uh, for example, uh, we have a dragon slayer woman who's actually standing on the beheaded head of the dragon she just killed. Uh, we have uh, a dragon machine god, uh, particularly like that one. Uh, we have two fortresses. Uh, one that comes with a corset and one that uh, can be unlocked. And so it's just a great variety of stuff. And uh, if you just go to that link there, you can see everything we offer. 
And uh, I think uh, it's something special. Looking at this, this is some beautiful stuff. Uh, I don't know if, you know, how much you guys have gotten the printed. I see the resin model of one, but a lot of it is just the 3D models. How do you guys ensure that those 3D models is what does come out? Uh, we're testing everything. Uh, I've oh. tested, I've tested uh, three already to begin with, and they came out great. And uh, as um, they get uh, the supports and everything ready for a resin printer, uh, they'll test them on their printers, and then they'll send it to me. Uh, now, they, meaning the other members of the team, and I'll test it on mine. Because the printer I picked up was one of the lowest-end printers. So if it prints good on mine, it'll print good on anything. That's awesome because I, I'm certain I'm not the only one, but Alice and I have backed some Kickstarters. And then what we get, we're like, this is not what we saw when we were backing. So we got a lot more cautious. Right, right. And that's not serving the customer at all. You should always test your product out and make sure it looks good before you sell it to somebody else. Because if you don't do that, they're never going to buy from you again. See, we would like you to be repeat customers. <laughs> So uh, you said this is tied to some lore. Um, the Survivors of Sarath, what's that? Is is that for any particular game edition, or could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, Survivors of Sarath, Sarath is a fantasy world that I created. So uh, everything you see in there ties into lore from that world uh, I created. So, And, of course, when you're creating a world, you create your own nations, your own factions in there, gods, uh, monsters. And uh, if you look at the flavor text on each uh, miniature, you get little snippets as to uh, the model's uh, character's place in that world. Now, I'll tell you a little bit, uh, but not much. So anything specifically you'd like to ask uh, since you're looking at the, the Kickstarter itself? Um, let's see. I see. So I, I'm looking at... Well, I'm actually trying to see where you, where those... Okay, is this down here where we I see like Krista Catterwall... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some of these other characters okay um so this is uh maybe uh i guess system agnostic uh Correct. setting okay Correct. cool um can you tell us anything about the setting or just is that all all right well um let's see i, I can talk about uh, the metalhead tribe since that's uh one of the things you can get is the fortress of the metalhead tribe uh, the Metalhead Tribe are the half-orcs. Okay. And uh, I came up with the idea when I first created a half-orc bard. Uh, I said, okay, I need to come up with a name for this guy. And I thought, Gargar Metalhead. You know, as, just as a joke. And then it started uh, making the wheels of my head turn. And I said, okay, well, why, why would they be called the Metalhead Tribe? So, well, they have piercings all in their head. And then I came up with uh, marriage yeah. rituals, you know, punching each other in the face. All right, how would they survive? They can't just be brutal and raiding all the time. It's, okay, well, they herd uh, reptiles. Um, Protoceratops is uh, what, what I came up with because yeah. I like dinosaurs. I wanted to throw that in there. And, uh, okay, what god would they worship? Well, in my world, uh, half-orcs are created, and uh, they're actually a slave stock race. Uh, they, they were a, a deliberate breeding program. So I decided that they would worship the god of freedom because this was a group that broke away from that and uh, okay. went into these mountains to live and survive. And that so sounds that, really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, Pharaoh Crane, which uh, I came up with the name of Ferris Cranium, you know, metal head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. 
that's their main fortress. That's where they go uh, when things are dangerous and they all need to gather together and fight and defend. That's this, the, I see these, the gates of Ferrocrane down here. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. That's, that's really neat. That's just, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty neat. Just even, even without that, the cool setting behind it. Um, yeah. Well, the uh, one that like really. A, well, it's like I told uh, someone else who asked me about this. I said, art's not just a visual thing. It's an emotional thing as well. And so to get that emotional tie, you need to tell the story behind the piece of artwork. I agree with that completely because the piece that speaks to me a lot comes from the fact that I have a story basis in it. Uh, and that's uh, uh, Sister Corazon Abiete. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah. So she's looks like a nun with two swords out. Well, go back <laughs> a number of years and Alice and I were playing Mordheim. When we walked into our local game store one night, uh, we were asking about Mordheim. Somebody was there that played it. So he's like, oh, let me... Let me show you. And so he's running through the groups and which group do you want want to try? And Alice says, well, I'll try the Sisters of Sigmar. Well, she absolutely loved them. Uh, she, He said, well, it's kind of a weak group. She destroyed him, basically. Uh, then we would they did Friday night games and such. And we came back and everybody started looking at Sisters of Sigmar in a different light after somebody had played them. But that looks perfect for uh, one of the Sisters of Sigmar. If only it was hammers instead of long swords or spiked whips. Well, uh, Sister Corazon belongs to uh, an order of nuns that uh, intentionally inject themselves with uh, radiant-infused water into their hearts over and over and over again until their bodies change and their blood becomes infused with radiant energy. So whenever they're bit by vampires or um, any sort of blood-drinking undead, their blood serves as uh, a toxin to that undead. Nice. That's the little flavor that you've got on there, which I thought was cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she ties in with the other uh, vampire hunting character up in the corset, uh, Antigone Angelos. Now I, like I need to go buy good. a 3D printer. <laughs> right? Thank There's you. Some good resin <laughs> ones out there now that are not, uh, I think Elian has one that's uh, not super expensive. Uh, Elegoo is pretty good. Anycubic's pretty good. I, I'm using the lowest end Anycubic so that uh, we, we can ensure that uh, the print looks good on whatever kind of printer a customer may have. Now, as a question, are you guys able to, to uh, give them the file so they can work at the digital tabletop as well? Bring it to a VTT? Now, that's actually something I haven't thought of. I'll have to talk about that with the rest of the team. But thank you for asking. Interesting. I've heard some other companies are, are looking at that. I don't know if they've done it or not. As Al said, we don't have a, a, a 3D printer at this point. But Well, there's so much good uh, terrain out there and so many good um, models that you can 3D print. Um, if you play with miniatures at all, it's just good to get because um, it. not only that, it the initial investment, of course, is slightly expensive, but it really cuts down on the expense because a single bottle of resin can produce 70, 80 miniatures. And that's a fraction of the cost for what you would normally pay for a box of miniatures. Yeah. yeah. 
and look at the fact that, you know, let's say you go to the anti-nubic, um, anti-cubic that you were just talking about for the photon zero, the lowest one, 219. Well, people spend about that much for a router. So it's not Correct. that expensive. No, not, not at all. So you're looking at your initial investment about 200 bucks and then maybe uh, $20 for a bottle of resin. Now, my question about resin, uh, I've always been told that that's actually very, um, it causes a lot of smell and it's very dangerous for people with respiratory problems. So uh, I'm actually curious on how safe uh, these printers are for the resin printers and how much smell and how much uh, stuff it would cause people with respiratory distress, you know, people who have asthma and such like that. Well, I'm a former asthmatic and uh, I used to, I still have slight problems with uh, smoke and uh, smells in the air and things like that. So I just wear a standard air filter that uh, you pick up from uh, any hardware store when I work with this. And I, I wear gloves, of course, because it's sticky and you don't want to get it on your hands. But I don't have any problems. Because you just take basic safety precautions and you're fine. It looks beautiful. It does. Yeah, thank you. Oh, and uh, one last thing. Um, we had an early bird special uh, for the first 24 hours. That's passed, and now we're actually doing a second early bird special. So uh, take a look, and uh, you'll save a lot of money if you hop on the, on it right now because the, the price will go up after another 24 hours. Well, awesome. Thanks for the insider tip there. Uh, no problem. Yeah, this was great. I'm glad we had you on here tonight. I am glad to be here. Thank you for having me on, truly. I've enjoyed uh, meeting all of you. Good perspectives, interesting people, lovely show. Well, Brandon? Well, as for me, I'm going to let Alice cover most of it um, on our professional stuff. But uh, in addition to what she'll hit later on, we have a we have a Discord server that we have a growing community uh, for. And we always welcome people. We try and get different games going on the Discord server. And so we'd welcome people to uh, come and join our family there. I'll pop a link into the chat. Have I not joined? I don't think I've joined y'all's Discord. Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm completely new to Discord. And that's me. So, Glenn, I think you're up. Okay. Um, I'm actually not selling anything. I'm trying to get the uh, Mastara Player's Guide approved by uh, the DMs Guild. And uh, unfortunately, the lockdown has kind of put me back to square one with that. I do have uh, multiple channels of YouTube where I review not just the Mastara setting for Dungeons & Dragons, but a lot of older... Um, RPGs. Uh, let me find some. Let me post some of those up. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is the Mastara channel where I cover everything in that setting. Hmm. Nice. Uh, here's one that I've, I've been covering all of the books from the Cyberpunk 2020 because I'm a huge Cyberpunk fan. I'm waiting for uh, 2077 to come out. Which for the 
which for the longest I thought 2077 was going to be the release date. <laughs> there still isn't proof it won't be. <laughs> well, they've got to pass the date so that that way it's actually um, outdated and not quite accurate by the time we're playing. And this is the Mad Musings, where I started off reviewing Street Fighter. I've covered uh, Shadowrun, Cyberpunk, Star Wars D6, uh, some obscure ones. Like, it came from the Late Late Show. I covered Iron Kingdoms. Uh, the one I'm about to cover is Aqualair, which is the very first Spanish, uh, or the very first pure Spanish RPG, where it was designed, written, published all in Spain. And they just got their first English translation. And, oh my God, this would never fly in the United States. Everything that the uh, people in the Satanic Panic were screaming about, it's in this one. But it's in Spanish, right? Uh, no, this is the, they translated the fourth oh, edition. I'm they sorry. had a Kickstarter where they translated, oh my God, my Spanish is awful. Uh, <laughs> my Spanish is pretty much uh, re, uh, limited to Señorita Dos Más Cervezas, por favor. Or Polegro Porajale Hombre Lobos in Mibanos. It's okay though, you can speak Spanish and Welsh. Yeah. My German's better than uh, my German's better than my Spanish. Though surprisingly when I was visiting Italy, I got by on my Spanish. I know I only know four hundred words. But uh yeah, um and then I always try I've been trying to find a copy of uh they they uh they had a copy here and somebody sold they sold it right before the lockdown of uh was that game uh new gods of mankind which was a strange one and i review really good games like uh what was it the stars without numbers i reviewed that one i review really bad games like tefra what's tefra tefra was a steampunk rpg where it was obsessed with the number 12 and tefra is the particles that get blown up in the air by volcanoes and uh, it was a strange one because your stat was equal to the number of uh, skills you had in that stat. So if you have five strength stats, or you have five strength skills, you have a strength of five. And hmm. it just, nothing worked. Uh, they had six abilities, and the crafting abilities was, I think, a third of the book. And the rest of them were far less. Uh, and it just... It, they they tried they tried to reinvent the wheel and it just it didn't work especially considering that the other uh, steampunk RPG other than Iron Kingdoms that I reviewed was 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 Castle Falconstein which is just an absolutely fabulous game. Yep. And so it's you know you're you're trying to you're trying to copy a steampunk game when there's already a insanely better version of steampunk on the market. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the, the the King Arthur movies. The problem is, is Excalibur put the bar somewhere in the in the stratosphere, and you you will always get compared to something else in the field. But I've got to get that one, and I'm going to. I'm always trying to find new games, and yeah, some of my stuff isn't uh, is is kind of controversial, like when I pan Numenera. Come play with us sometime. Okay. I'll see you. I can get out of Houston. You don't, hmm? you 
you don't need to uh, get out of Houston to come play with babies with knives. We do uh, stuff online. Oh, okay. Um, uh, th this new electronic <laughs> technology is terrifying. <laughs> he's he's steampunk. You're gonna have to get like a phonograph. Yeah. And uh, hey. yeah. If we can get Bill Webb to be GMing online, you are not <laughs> going to be a problem, okay? Trust me. I've taught some very, I've taught some very old school people um, on how to transition. I, you would be no problem, from what I've heard. You can work YouTube. That's a lot more than a lot of people I've had to teach. Okay. That is a fair point. Okay. Well, l let me just throw this up as a warning then. Did he go silent as his warning? Yes, I heard that too. It's so bad he can't even say it. I know. Censored this by Discord. No, this is what I'm best known for. You're gonna be <laughs> easy to teach. Don't worry about it. It's not that it's not that hard. People make it seem like it's a lot worse than it is. Oh no, I'm not saying the difficulty of teaching it. I'm just saying this the difficulty of dealing with you. Yeah, the difficulty of yeah. having me in the game when um I, I do stuff like discover that in Seventh uh, C that if you anything that drop more than fifty pounds does deals no damage. So me and the uh, the Castilian were playing dodgeball with cannonballs for the rest of the campaign. <laughs> I disagree with number twenty five. The green elf does need food badly. Elf is about to die. And if the elf rolls badly, we're not allowed to water him. I never played as that weedy elf. I was the barbarian whose whose own chest was an armor. I played Tim, the polka gnome. Anything else you want to plug, Glenn? He's got so many things. Yeah, know, it's, right? it's twenty. It's up to it's two thousand five hundred and twenty-five now. <laughs> I just in the last game we were playing, I tried to combine the best parts of a pogo stick and a slap chop. <laughs> Um, well, this just sounds fantastic to me. <laughs> I don't think. Anyway, I'm just. I'm, I'm just wondering: nuts. has anybody corrected your list to tell you that you already <laughs> had that rule? No, some of the rules are somewhat similar, but they came from different games. Gotcha. Like when we played uh, Gerps, and I played Mediocre Man, the master of uh, the mediocre, and he had every skill in the game at level ten. So as long as it wasn't that hard, he could do it. You know, routine brain surgery. He was there. And then in, uh, yeah, and then when we were playing, uh, when I was playing my polka gnome in a, in a 3.0, every one of my skills was a, a one-point professional skill because those were all the jobs he'd been fired from. Well, um, if we don't have anything else, uh, if you don't have anything else, I think we'll turn it over to... Um... Uh, Lala and see what she can tell us about Babies with Knives. Sure. So for those who don't know Babies with Knives, we are a YouTube podcast focused on character creation, uh, crash courses, and actual plays for a wide variety of tabletop role-playing game systems. We actually are very much steering away from reviewing games. We give feedback at the end of actual play sessions, but we try to... We, Try to remember that there's a game for everyone. And just because it's not for us, it might it doesn't mean that it's not going to be for someone out there. So we try and make sure that we show you things that you might be interested in. Um, among the games that we are featuring, we just uh, played Wicked Packs, 
with Mickey Barfield. And we recently just played Save the Day with um, with uh, David Oakham, creators. And we are we also have a character, sorry, we have an actual play that just launched this morning with Crystal Frazier for Mutants and Masterminds. So the Wicked, uh, Wicked Packs will be popping up this week. Well, sorry, not this week. It's Friday. It'll be popping up on our um, on our feed next week. On Monday will be the first half of the episode of the part one of Wicked Packs, and then part two will be launching on Thursday. I'll be squeezing in. Um, say the save of the day was already is already posted, and uh, sometime next week you can also expect an episode of API Apocalypse Prevention Incorporated, where I will be GMing, and it will be a system that I had never GM before or even played before, so it was us learning. It's Monday Night Madness is about everyone at the table learning a new game, so uh, come join us for that, and um, what else do I need? To oh, and also we're going to be doing more games with uh, Mickey Barfield. We're going to be doing Spy and several other systems by Polyhedral Knights. So you can expect that in this coming month. I'm not allowed to give away our big feature for the month because I got uh, talking to last You've time. You've already given that away. You mentioned that on on, uh, board game, on RPG Breakfast last week, Alice. Did I? Oh, oops. Yes. <laughs> well... On Monday, where your Monday's our official announcement, but we do have um, a Riot Minds game coming out for um, our next feature month. So Monday's our official announcement. Stay tuned to see which Riot Minds game it will be. We'll put it that way, <laughs> and we'll be doing a we'll be doing crash courses. So we'll be doing a system crash course, a character crash course. We're going to be doing a character creation demonstration, and then we're going to be doing an actual play over the course of the month. Oh, and today is also marks our first giveaway drawing for Mutants and Masterminds. Our winners were just announced at 6 p.m. Pacific time, so about two hours ago. And so if you entered or um, and such, go check it out. If you didn't get a chance to enter, we have another chance coming for you to win. And uh, we'll be giving other opportunities through our Discord and our Patreon. So keep an eye out for that as well. The bundles are pretty freaking cool if you want Ma Mutants and Masterminds stuff. Green Ronin, um, Green Ronin, uh, Rogue Genius Games, and Fainting Goat were very, very generous. Oh, and also one last thing I need to plug. Uh, we are doing stuff with Frog God Games' YouTube channel, as you heard. And Brandon is currently GMing some Lost Lands every Wednesday. So... Uh, every Wednesday, there will be an episode up. We are cutting. You'll notice if you're watching and paying attention that uh, we are not posting full sessions. So I am cutting and editing and posting about one hour session segments. And last thing I need to cover is that uh, Banff is currently uh, Banff podcast where Brandon and I uh at our frequent contributors, we're currently doing a lot of Valor Knights content with them during lunchtime beat-em-ups, and we'll be doing a little bit of phase rip with Aid as well. So check those out. I think that's my list. Whew. <laughs> Thank you for well, listening. I have a question for y'all. Um, so when when you're running uh you're you're running actual plays, um I'm assuming that, you know, folks are looking at like the faces of all the players and participants, you know, and I, I think I've seen some of that on, on your YouTube and all, um, where, you know, you're basically just, you're streaming and you're sitting in there and, and playing the games and having fun. Um, what kind of like 
preparations or visuals uh, are required to do that, or do you need any? Um, what do you mean for for that? If well, let me try and answer. Um, mm -hmm. When we get together with a creator, let's say Mickey Barfield, for mm -hmm. example, since we're going to be doing more with mm -hmm. him this coming week, there. Um, I immediately ask him for the logo for his company, the logo for his game, and as much art as he wants to show off for his game. Because what I do is rather than just doing frames and talking heads, I arrange us on OBS so that I can show off the logo of the game, logo of the company, and a slideshow of the art. Because we've all talked about how engaging art is and how it draws people in. And so we want to show us what kind of art they can expect from the game. So instead, since once upon a time, we could go down to the game store and see a really cool piece of art on a book and go, oh my gosh, I should open this and try it and then bring it home just because of a piece of art in the book. We can't do that anymore. So we're trying to replace that by saying, give me as much art as you want to show off and we'll make a slideshow and we'll present it to our viewers. And that's what we do with every creator that comes. Does that answer it? I, yeah, I have some crazy dogs over here right now. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. But yes, we try and make sure that we work with creators to show off, you know, the various aspects of their game when we're playing. Um, we actually have, a, we've actually had some awesome creators that have liked us enough that they want to do projects with us when they're going on to Kickstarter, you know, preface it with us, or some of them even play test their new games on our server, which is really awesome. It's a growing community and it's a lot of fun. So come join us and maybe you get to play test a game and get your name in a book sometime. Who knows? I'd like to come and play sometime. So um, I'll probably be bugging you guys. We do frequently look for players, so. I'm more and than happy to help you out with that. Yay. Well, so, come join us. Just it, make sure, one quick mm -hmm. thing, if you join Babies with Knives Discord, make sure you go to the welcome channel and you read our rules, and at the bottom, there's a little reaction request. If you hit that reaction, you'll gain full access to the server. Until you do, all you get is our uh, promotional content where we allow creators to post news about their uh, their Kickstarters or their projects and such, and uh, you won't see much. So make sure that you hit that, so that way you get access to the rest of the server, like the playrooms and such. And that's in the, the Discord channel. Yes, the Discord channel would be the very first channel at the top. Cool. And you were going to say, I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, I, I think I got it. Uh, I think I got the gist of it. I'm really sorry. Usually my uh, dogs are asleep right now, and they just decided it was wild and crazy time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's, it, so it sounds like, uh, in general, you try to, uh, promote the imagery of the game. Uh, but as far as like, uh, visuals and stuff, it seems like most of the game gaming is taking place, uh, in the imagination and is sort of shared storytelling across the, uh, the YouTube, uh, channel and obviously with dice. By all means, yes, that's, you know, primarily it's a theater of the mind. And so what do I need to do to prep? Well, it's the same as if you do it around a table, but, you know, it's more mm -hmm. like I grew up playing D&D on bus rides. That's where my first introduction was or at recess. So we didn't have any sort of battle map or anything like that. It was a friend of mine, Paul and I, another guy, Adam, and we would just play. Um, and so you can do that 
in virtual tabletop and it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Um, we do use fantasy grounds for some things. Alice was mentioning the fifth edition um, game that I'm I'm running Bardsgate for some of the frogs. Um, and we're using fantasy grounds for that. Also people will have images of uh, if, like they're they have art done for a character or a scene okay. or just art from somewhere. They just pull it into Discord and drop it uh, into the chat, and that'll share it with people. And so it's a great way to get people a visual, even if maybe we aren't able to take that visual for whatever copyright reasons and put it up, uh, you know, in our videos. It at least gives the players an idea. Um, when we're playing with creators, a lot of times they have great art from their book and all that they get to use. And a key component to this for us is we try and make sure that the GM is GMing in the most comfortable fashion to them. Uh, so whether that is in the case of David Oakham, he had he was moving his camera around and showing the um, and oh the actual play is not up the character creation is I need to get that up um, but he was moving his camera around on his uh, dining table to show us the visuals of the architecture that he had built because he is someone who literally builds a lot of terrain. And, or we have GMs who want to use Roll20 or we have GMs who want to use Fantasy Grounds or just Discord. We even had GMs who are like, I don't like Discord, I like to use Zoom, can I GM there? It's whatever we can accommodate to make the, the GM most comfortable and I will try and basically work with them so that, because if they're not comfortable, the game's going to suck, period. I want to make sure that they are going to be in a fluffy, comfy recliner, happy to run. And she's really good at it. Like, amazing. She, you know, I, I, I just show up on camera and talk nonsense uh, for a little while. Uh, everything after we record, that's pretty much all Alice. Because she's, as, as we always say around the table, wicked smart. I'm resident tech support. That's, that's, he's glorifying my resident tech supportness. All it is is tech support. And uh, post-production stuff. Well, it sounds like a whole lot of fun, um, and and it I like the uh, the sense of the flexibility there because different people have different styles, and a lot of us now are moving towards you know how do we promote in a uh, online format, and you know what's the comfort level, what's the prep for it. You know, the one of the number one complaints that I hear uh, from other game masters right now is you know oh I've got to do all this extra prep time or this extra work to make my game presentable online. Um, and that sort of takes away some of the time that they might have just uh, prepping, you know, the description of an encounter or something else uh, or fine tuning it rather than, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how do I make it look really pretty in, in Roll20 or something. By all means, that is a, that is a big time sink barrier if, that's the way that you want to engage. I know I like if I'm doing D&D or I'm doing Pathfinder, it's like for Bardsgate, I converted the adventure that we're using uh, from the, the Frog God Games Bardsgate book. I put it into Fantasy Grounds. That took me a long time to do for just a quick image, uh, for just a quick character. Sorry, the image popped up in the chat. Um, and uh, I'm doing another one for a Pathfinder adventure path, and that's going to take me a long time to finish uh, in fantasy grounds, I'll be happy with it. But you know what? The truth is, we've probably all played theater of the mind games, and we've probably all had fun with it. So you you can sit down and do that.
Well, um, I think if if there's nothing more, we can probably wrap up on that note because uh, we have guests, and it appears that they've moved on to other and uh, other things on Friday evening, um, <laughs> and we've kind of used our time to uh, you know uh, do that product placement and talk about what it is that we do. Um, I'm really happy that uh, you know. Uh, the folks here that have returned uh, continue to return. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, it's always a lot, a lot of fun, and it's really interesting to hear from from all of you. Uh, and I am really happy, uh, Caleb, that you know uh, you uh, decided to come on to the show tonight and take a chance on us. Uh, I had a lot of fun with you guys. I hope y'all did too. I had a fantastic time. And one thing I just did want to say because it was mentioned earlier uh, on the the tiefling art. Yeah, uh, the change. I don't. I don't know Planescape. I, I'm aware of it. I never really played much with it. But you know, Tieflings in third edition had one look, and they were already going, you know, pretty horny and such. But then in fourth edition, all of a sudden, it was like <laughs> Tim Curry is in your book, looking at you, and you're like, Tim Curry is now your player character from Legend. Enjoy that, guys. Do they all talk like that too? Uh, I think it is mandatory. I would be weirdly okay with that if they did. I liked the goblin, like his little riddles, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe pretty, maybe sweet, ain't half as nice as riding meat, you know, just stuff like that was just, he was so creepy. Higher, higher, burning fire, making music like a choir. Yeah, he was awesome. I actually got to interview Robert Picardo about Legend. He played uh, Meg Knucklebones, the doctor from Discovery, not Discovery, uh, Voyager. Voyager. Yes, he was, he was the uh, Swamp Witch. Oh my god! I, I just we just watched Legends a uh, Legend a couple years ago, but I'm gonna have to watch that again to see this. Oh, he's he's all in latex. You can't see it. You yeah. can't see anything. But it's in the credits. It's Robert Picardo. I hope wow. that's not what he looked like. Yeah, because yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I'm gonna kick Craig out of here. So if we want to oh, say yeah. goodbye to Craig. Bye, Bye, Craig. Craig. Bye, Craig. Have a lovely day.